Thank you. Um, well, hello. Good evening. Um, thank you so much for, for having me. My, my name is Dan, as, um, as, uh, as David has, has said, and I'm one of the pastors at Grace Church Gateshead, which is in Gateshead, and um, uh, Bencham, for those of you who know Gateshead, so we're, we're quite near Saltwell Park, uh, those of you who know Gateshead. I've just realized that I've got my Bible opening completely the wrong place. So um, we will be looking at Psalm 44. I'll just say a little bit about that in, in just a minute. Um, but before I do, it's... Um, it's a real joy to be here. I, um, I've had the pleasure of getting to know Andrew Crane uh, over the last several years through the Northeast Gospel Partnership and uh, sort of personally really miss him. And uh, now that he's down in the rural south or wherever he's gone. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm sure that, uh, that uh, uh, that's the same for you here as the church family at, at Silksworth. So we'll be praying for you um, in this sort of interim as uh, uh, you look to the Lord's leading um, uh, with regards to the... Um, uh, appointing the next pastor of Silksworth. So uh, we are praying for you within the Northeast Gospel Partnership, and it's really lovely to be here. Um, I'm going to read Psalm 44. So if you have a Bible, perhaps you could, you could turn that up. I'm going to read it before I sort of say anything more about it. Um, and uh, so Psalm 44 is our passage for this evening. I'm going to read this through, and then I'm going to pray, and then we'll get, and then we'll get into it. Uh, Psalm 44 says this, To the choir master, a maskil of the sons of Korah. O God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us, what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my king, O God, ordain salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes, through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me, but you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually and we will give thanks to your name forever. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face. At the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. 
awake. Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. This is God's word. This is the passage that we'll be looking at this evening. So let me pray. Let's say a prayer. Uh, before we go any further and ask for God's help. Father, we thank you for this chance this evening to be gathered like this. Thank you for the privilege that it is to read the Bible in words that we can understand. We don't take that for granted. And Father, we ask that um, we ask for power from your spirit to be able to understand um, what these words say and for power from your spirit to make these words our own. Please help us to be able to pray these words ourselves through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask that in his name. Amen. Well, a picture that I think is helpful to have in mind as we go through Psalm 44, uh, a a nice locally sourced picture, is that of Suter Lighthouse. Um, And uh, the reason why I say that is imagine yourselves uh, and you are are sailing sailing along the northeast coast and you see Suter Lighthouse and you recognize it from, from, from your boat. And um, you think, why is it painted red and white? I don't know. But um, you, 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 and then you, you, maybe, you, maybe you're more up. Maybe, maybe it's, it, night starts to fall, and um, you're in the middle of a terrible storm. And uh, the light dark. Sorry, the, the light goes dark, and huge, uh, threatening black clouds fill the sky until you can no longer see Suter Lighthouse. In fact, you can see virtually nothing apart from maybe a few meters ahead of you. I mean, maybe some of you have been in that kind of that kind of a situation at sea. Now, my question to you is actually a very simple one. It's simply, you know that if that was you, you would still know that Suter Lighthouse was there, and you would still know what it looked like, even though you couldn't at that moment in time see it. Maybe you couldn't see it for hours, maybe even days, if it was some particularly bad storm at sea. Now, that is a parallel. Perhaps you've heard very similar analogies given to uh, seasons that we go through in the Christian life where the love of God is not doesn't seem to be anywhere. We we find ourselves in a season of the Christian life where we are just surrounded by shame and disappointment and perhaps failure. And uh, we're filled with all kinds of questions. What on earth are you doing in this season, God? And because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, those who have come to know God as he truly is in the Lord Jesus Christ are able to say, just as this psalm will be our guide this evening, we can appeal to God's covenant faithfulness. In other words, the faithfulness of God that is rooted in himself. I've promised it, so I'll do it. His promise-keeping, never giving up, never running out, always and forever, however you want to define it, loyal and unbreakable love. His, I've said I'm going to love, so I'm going to love love. People who have come to know that love through the face of the Lord Jesus Christ are like you and I with Suter Lighthouse, even though we may, for whatever reason, for some extended season, be in the, the thick of something so terribly hard, we know and therefore can pray to God as he really is. Do you notice, do you notice what, so, what I think is the most striking thing is probably the simplest thing about this psalm? It's the fact that even though we don't know all the details, we'd maybe love to know, of what this person is going through, they are praying to God. That's the biggest thing, is that they haven't turned away from God, but they are turning to God in the midst of their 
trial and their struggle. So I've got three things that I want to um, highlight as we go through our, 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 our psalm this evening. My sort of big idea, um, my, my sort of o overarching point is, uh, is you have made us like sheep for slaughter. And that's a phrase which you'll recognize I've picked out there uh, from verse 11. You have made us like sheep for slaughter. That, I think, is the big idea of this psalm. If you want to sum it up in one kind of phrase, that's how I would do it. Um, it's the kind of phrase that crops up in the Bible quite a lot, isn't it? Sheep slaughter, sacrifice, sadly, to the extent that we can almost kind of glaze over it, uh, our eyes can sort of glaze over, we stop maybe feeling the impact. But for God's people to talk about themselves as you've made us like sheep for the slaughter, we're basically saying our whole existence is just to suffer and die. That's what it means to be a sheep for the slaughter, isn't it? So isn't it striking that here are words inspired by, by the Holy Spirit for God's people to pray back to him, recognizing that there are times in our lives when we will feel like our whole existence is simply one of suffering, of being given over to death. There's a very important verse, we'll come to it in due course, verse 22, which the Apostle Paul very famously quotes in Romans 8, and I'm sure many of you will know and love that passage. But there is our big idea, you have made us like sheep for slaughter. And so if you want a kind of subheading, a sort of subpoint for Psalm 44, it, is, it would be something like this, how to pray when you are humiliated, or uh, ha how to pray when you are suffering for God's sake. Now, it's written by the sons of Korah. I mean, let's look at, the, we remember, of course, that these first little bits in our Bible, what we, what we call the superscript, uh, these, these little words, which in my Bible here says, to the choir master, a masculine of the sons of Korah. Remember, those, these bits have not been put in by the Bible translators. Um, these are part of the original in, in, uh, inspired Hebrew. And so um, the, the, the way to understand this is that, although we don't know who precisely would have written Psalm 44 originally, it seems like particularly, particularly in this stretch of the Psalms uh, around here, we have, we have prayers that were written down, people pouring out their longing to God. Uh, which were then turned into, uh, arranged into things that would be sung collectively by the people of Israel. Hence, it's to the choir master. We don't know what a masquil is, some kind of musical arrangement probably. Of the sons of Korah. Well, who are the, who, who are the sons of Korah? They've, they've written a stretch of psalms. If you know your, your sort of ordering of psalms, basically Psalms 42 through to 49 are a kind of stretch, arranged, uh, uh, of, of, uh, arranged stretch of um, psalms by the sons of Korah. Perhaps you know about Korah. Those of, you, those of you interested to follow this up, you can read Numbers 16. A man called Korah, who was of the sort of priestly line of the people of Israel, but he very famously sinned in desiring more for himself and was very famously punished. Uh, by God, and he, he and his family. However, there's a later uh, reference in the book of Numbers, Numbers uh, 26, which says that, the, however, the line of Korah did not die out. And so just, just imagine that for a minute, that uh, to be one of the sons of Korah is already to be in a kind of family line that, that knows what it is to sort of carry shame and a sort of mixed feeling about your heritage. We're told that King David made the sons of Korah uh, very involved as singers and gatekeepers within uh, the temple worship. Uh, hence, probably their, their involvement here in, 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 in bringing some of these psalms together. So that's some of our backdrop here. <clears throat> Three points that I want to make as we go through. The first one is, is, is really quite brief. Um, we have trusted in God, not ourselves. 
we have, we have trusted in God, not ourselves. Now, this psalm begins with things like this. If you have your Bible, look, at, uh, look, look down there at verse 1. O oh God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old, like the ancient days. So, uh, uh, this is casting, uh, bringing to mind people like um, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and perhaps even earlier on in the book of, of Genesis, um, Noah and so on beginning and tracing the Bible's storyline, God's faithfulness to his people. This is where the psalm begins. Verse 2 then talks about how God gave the land to his people, and particularly the kind of thing that we might read about in the book of Joshua. You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. And then verse 3 says some wonderful things. Not by their sword did they win the land, but by your mighty arm. So this is a wonderful psalm, isn't it? I mean, it's telling us, God, you're the hero. <laughs> you're the hero of your people. Um, notice how there's this, there's this moving back and forth between the we and the us, and then the me and the my. So verse 4 then says, you are my king, O God. Whoever's writing this is, 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 has his people, his or her people in mind, and yet is, is also writing this as an individual. This, this is a wonderful faith that we have a window in here. You're my king, O God. Look at verse 5. Isn't, isn't, this, isn't this a wonderful, isn't this exactly right? Through you we push down our foes. We, we, don't, we don't succeed through our own strength. We succeed through faith in God, through dependence upon him. Look at verse 6. Not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. You have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. And then verse 8 is like the sort of summary, I would say, of verses 1 to 8. Just have a look at that. In God we have boasted, same word there for praised, uh, in God, we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. It seems to me we could, we could kind of read verses 1 to 8 and go, wow, what an amazing psalm. This is like, I love this psalm. This is brilliant. This is exactly how it should, should be. This should be God's people not trusting in themselves, but trusting in God and looking confidently to the future as we look confidently to the past because our God is a God who works and who saves and who acts. You get all that in verses 1 to 8. In God, uh, sorry, we have trusted in God, not in ourselves. I mean, wow, whoever this is has got it spot on. I mean, this is how I would love to program my own heart if I could do that with verses 1 to 8. We have trusted in God, not ourselves. So then verse 9 is like a handbrake turn, isn't it? But you have rejected us and disgraced us. So here's a second point that I want to make, uh, and I've, I've just put it like this, but you have humiliated us, but you have humiliated us. So with everything that he's just said in mind, but, verse 9, but you have rejected us, disgraced us, have not gone out with our armies. Now, we might not really like to think in these terms, but this next stretch of verses, he's like hammering God, isn't he? It's like one bold statement after another. You've rejected us and disgraced us. You've made us turn back from the foe. You've made us like sheep for slaughter. You sold your people for a trifle. You've made us the taunt of our neighbors. You've made us a byword among the nations. All day long my disgrace is before me, and so on. These verses are just full of humiliation. Look how many phrases are given over to that. See verse 13, taunt, derision, scorn. Verse 14, a byword, a laughing stock. Verse 15, disgrace, shame, and so on. 
verse 17, all this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Look at that boldness. Now, people scratch their heads and try and work out, well, when was this, like, written <clears throat> in the Bible storyline? It doesn't seem like it's written within what we call the exile, if you know the, if you know the sort of storyline of the Bible, because things that were written in the exile are very clear and very consistent that the people were exiled from the land because of their sin and guilt before God. And you can read about those kinds of things in books like Jeremiah and uh, Daniel and Ezekiel and so on. Whereas the writer here is ever so confident that uh, this is not a punishment for their sin. His point seems to be, we've been faithful and you've humiliated us. Now, let's just pause for a minute. I wonder how many of us actually can relate to this. I wonder how many of us um, almost haven't given ourselves permission to feel or to pray like this. Uh, the other night, <clears throat> so we have, we, we have three children. Our youngest is a, is a, is a little three-year-old. And um, the other night, I was reading to him some of the, some of the old Thomas story, Thomas the Tank Engine stories. Um, <clears throat> I've got to say, I know, I've never really got into the whole Thomas thing. But he really likes them. Um, those of you who are parents, perhaps you have mixed feelings about, about Thomas. But the, um, I really don't like the fat controller. Um, and I, but I, don't like, <laughs> I don't like his attitude to the trains. So I don't like his attitude to the trains. Um, because, um, so what... what sort of for two reasons. So I don't, I don't like this whole thing in Thomas about Thomas and all the, all the other engines want to be um, a, a really useful engine. If you don't know these books, you've like this sort of really, capital R, capital U, capital E, as if it's like this thing to be a really useful engine. So they're all aspiring to be really useful engines who the fat controller uh, approves of. So they all want the fat controller's approval. And the fat controller literally says things like, um, I don't want lazy engines, I send lazy engines away. Um, so I, I, the reason why I don't like it is I don't, um, so I, I don't, don't, don't like that way of speaking to, 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 to the engines, but I really don't like the fact that, I, don't, I really don't like the fact that as, as, so as parents, as you have, as you have parents, you've, if you agree with me uh, um, or not, but um, I don't like, uh, what I think is dangerous as Christian parents is we, we can like books like Thomas because we find them morally reassuring. So in Thomas's world, in the fact controller's world, you do a good job, you get accepted. Um, and if you do a lazy job, well, then you'll be corrected and you'll be humiliated and the other engines will laugh at you and then you'll learn to be a hardworking engine. And if you don't, you'll be sent away. So it's, it's like you do good, you get good, you do bad, you get bad. That's a nice morally reassuring world. The problem is that that's just not the world that we are raising children to live in. And you come to Psalm 44, how many of us know what it's like to be in an experience of life where some trial, some really hard thing comes our way, which we would never have expected, never would have chosen, and it's not because we've done anything wrong. In fact, it's because we've been following Jesus that we find ourselves in some kind of terrible situation. And then we have all these lurking fat controller type questions. Is it because I've done something wrong and I've deserved this? Because like, that's the basic architecture of human self-righteousness, isn't it? I mean, that's us without knowing God as he really is. We go, well, good stuff happens to good people and bad stuff happens to bad people, so if bad stuff is happening to you, you must be a bad person. You're just not admitting it. You just haven't realized how bad you are yet. And perhaps you know how crushing that is. 
if you've set out sincerely to follow the Lord Jesus and something just comes your way that just leaves you feeling like what these verses say. You've, you've, you've covered me in disgrace. It's like this has just come to nothing. I remember um, years ago, the church where I was an assistant, uh, we, we, um, uh, we, we did a Christianity Explored course. I remember a, a lady who came to that, a young lady who'd come to that. And she was very bravely look, looking into Christianity again. She had been raised in a Christian home, had been a very passionate young uh, believer, um, had, had got married to uh, um, a, a seemingly godly man in the church. They'd done marriage, pre- marriage counseling, marriage preparation, and everything. And she found, she found out within a few years of, uh, sorry, within a few months of being married, um, uh, that this man had been unfaithful to her for a long period. Um, and for her, that just, that just completely blew out of the water. It just, her whole life, understandably, just completely disintegrated. Because she thought, well, I, I was trying to follow the Lord Jesus. I was trying to honor him with everything, including my marriage. And it was precisely, I didn't have to do this, it was precisely in following the Lord Jesus that has led me to this place of complete humiliation. Well, the first thing we have to realize is that before we even get to uh, Psalms like Psalm 44, the Bible already gives us reference points. The Bible already teaches us very clearly that this is not a fact controller world. Uh, perhaps you know the, the story of the life of Job Uh, He doesn't know everything in his lifetime about all that's happening backstage. But the point with Job is that all this suffering comes his way precisely because he is a man who fears the the Lord and lives righteously. Uh, Perhaps you know the letter to the church in Smyrna. Let me briefly read that because it's very short. This is in the book of Revelation, chapter 2. Uh, and this is, the, this is the section of the, if I can actually just find where chapter 2 is in my Bible. It's the Lord Jesus, uh, as I'm sure you know, writing a, 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 dictating a series of letters, which the Apostle John then writes down to churches, and they're recorded in, 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 in chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation. And it says, chapter 2, verse 8, To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life, I know your tribulation and your poverty, brackets, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Uh, do you notice there, there's, unlike some of the other letters, perhaps you know these, these chapters very well, unlike some of the other letters to the, some of the other churches, there, there is not a word, not a hint of, of criticism, of rebuke and of correction to the church in Smyrna. Secondly, the Lord Jesus says that he, he, knows, he knows their trouble. He knows, I know your tribulation, he says. He, he sees what pain they're going through. But on top of that, he says there's more still to come. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. So we have these reference points in the scripture already for people who are faithfully trusting in the Lord and yet extremely hard things come their way. 
And above all, we have the, our Lord Jesus in his suffering on his cross. Do you notice if those of you who, know, who, who perhaps know the Gospels, perhaps you've read a chapter like Mark 15, writing about the, 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 the suffering and the crucifixion of Jesus. Have you noticed how many lines of text are given over, are, are, are given to mentioning, to highlighting the, the mockery that is heaped upon the Lord Jesus? We're, 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 there's more emphasis on the mockery and the scorn and the shame that Jesus uh, carries. There's more emphasis on that than there is on the actual physical pain of the, of the crucifixion. You notice that? And yet our Lord Jesus is the Son of God. Like Father, like Son, fully God, has taken on human flesh, lives in this world, loving the Father completely, truly, purely. He is the only, ultimately, 100% righteous one. He's the one who can sing verses 1 to 8 in a way which no one else quite can. And yet precisely because he loves God, precisely because of that, he is crucified. Precisely because his obedience to the Father smokes out the unbelief of the Jewish rulers and authorities. Precisely because of that, he's crucified. You have humiliated us. There is a comfort before we go any further in the psalm, simply to realize that there is, there, is a, there is a big, wide highway for us to walk down in, for us to drive down in the Christian life, joined by fellow brothers and sisters who, in following and entrusting the Lord Jesus, find ourselves in something ever so hard, which has not come about because of our sin and our unrighteousness. For sure, there are parts of the Bible and other psalms where someone has been foolish and wayward and sinful and they turn from their wicked ways and they turn back to God in confession and so on. Of course, that, that's part of the Christian life as well. But the point we're thinking about this evening is that there are seasons and times and chapters in the Christian life. Perhaps for many, perhaps for many of you here this evening, uh, you're in something like this at the moment where through following the Lord Jesus sincerely, you find yourself covered in shame. You feel like a sheep awaiting slaughter. Well, look at verse 22 uh, before we leave this little section and look at our, at our final third, third point. After all that's been said, verse 22, here's our second handbrake turn, if you like. Yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Little cryptic phrase, yet for your sake. There's one little thing to take away from this evening. It's, it's that little phrase, for your sake. This is the difference that makes the difference. What does it mean? Well, it, mean, it means this is the point in the psalm where the psalmist says, we're yours. We're not just a, a people who get together, who agree on various points of worldview as Christians. We are first and foremost people who belong to God. And verse 22 is basically a reminder that suffering marks us out as the people of God. That is a big thing for us to get our heads around. It's a kind of cryptic phrase. For your sake, we are killed all the day long. It's kind of two related things at once. On the one hand, it's basically saying, we're suffering as we do precisely because our faith and obedience to you led us, led us here. In the same way that on the one hand, Jesus is hanging, dying on the cross, being scorned by everyone, 
precisely because of his love for the Father. Those in Smyrna are suffering precisely because they follow the Lord Jesus. But on the other hand, this for your sake thing, for your sake we're suffering, is this recognition that because we belong to the Father, well then our suffering is for his sake. It is somehow his good plans are indeed being unfolded in our lives. And everyone's life is a different masterpiece. You can't sort of compare and contrast because that's the other, the other side of the cross. It is indeed the Father's good plan. Father, Son, and Spirit, God the Trinity has worked to save a people for himself. This is the way of the Christian. To put it another way, Jesus said, if anyone will be my disciple, let him take up his cross, deny himself and follow me. <coughs> to take up your cross is to walk around as someone marked for death. I would suggest you and I, uh, you know, in, in the West, without wanting to sound just like a sort of grumpy old Christian man, he goes on about you know, which, you know, these myriad of ways in which we, the church in the West, have lost our way. Okay, we, we all agree on that. Um, but perhaps here's one thing which doesn't really get a look in, is we haven't fully accepted and understood the degree to which suffering and shame is the way. It, it, it is not some peripheral thing that sometimes happens to some Christians, and we do our best to avoid it. It is the very thing which marks us out as the fathers. It's the very fact that we live in this world marked for death, and as a derivative function of death, the suffering, the hardship, the persecutions in all their flames, uh, flavors and forms. It's for your sake. This is the way. So there's a place in the New Testament where Paul says to uh, the Philippian church, it has been granted to you. And that word granted, of course, means gifted. You might open up your emails and say, someone has gifted you an Amazon gift card or something. Well, that's what that word granted means. You go, oh, cool, what is it, what is it we've been granted? And then Paul says, Philippians 129, it's been granted to you uh, not only to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but also to suffer for him. Now, that takes a big, a big amount of reorganizing my whole outlook on life to receive suffering as a Christian, as a gift. Now, nowhere, nowhere are we sort of uh, supposed to be masochists in the Bible, not out there sort of looking for hardship just to kind of prove things. But the point is that we receive hard things in our lives. Somehow, as gifts from the Father, somehow as things which mark us out as his. That's why Paul then says that he has come to learn to boast in his weaknesses and his hardships of all kinds in 2 Corinthians 12. C.S. Lewis gave a famous, very famous picture, perhaps some of you know it, um, of uh, an artist who really, loves a piece, uh, who really loves and cares about a piece of art works at that piece of art more than the pieces of art that he doesn't care so much about. You know, first draft, second draft, third draft, scrunching up, working again, working again, and maybe it's a sculpture, chip, constantly chipping away. Those of you who are musicians, you'll know that the, that the piece that you really want to play well, you work at it and work at it and work at it, maybe break guitar strings and break piano strings and everything. 
Well, there is a sense, there, there is a sense, that there is a parallel there. The Father is treating us like his son. You and I need eyes to see it. That to face and to endure long seasons of hardship, not from our own sin, and to keep looking to the Father through those times, to keep pouring out our heart to him, is to follow ever so precisely the path of the Son of God. And if we share in his suffering, we will most assuredly share in his glory. It is for your sake. And so let's look then how the, how the psalm ends. Uh, this uh, third and final point then, wake up and help us. So we've, had, we've trusted in God, not ourselves, but you have humiliated us. And then last of all, wake up and help us. See verse 23, look at, look at this way of praying to God, awake. Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? Our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. And that final word there is massively important because it kind of locks the whole psalm into place. So if you remember that the first eight verses there are this kind of whistle-stop tour of the Bible storyline and God's faithfulness to his people and the fact that God is always the one who has acted and saved. And, and then this final word of the psalm, the very final word in, in verse 26, just one word in the Hebrew, is, uh, which we translated there as steadfast love, is this word that sums up God's promise-keeping, loyal love, always and forever unbreakable love. It's summed up in one really crucial word. Different Bible translations translate it in different ways. I have it here as steadfast love. You might have it as unfailing love in some Bible translations. But the point is this. He has Suter Lighthouse in mind the whole time. He has God as he is in mind the whole time. It hasn't changed. He hasn't turned away from God. At the very end, his final word is this steadfast love word. It's a loaded word. It's, if you were reading this on a web page, it would be you know, in blue with a little line under it because you'd, you'd double click it and it would open up this whole myriad of other things. And it's this same it's steadfast love, which then in the New Testament, the, the Apostle Paul says things like, uh, with, with the cross of the Lord Jesus in mind, says, nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. This, this, this steadfast love of God has been shown in the body of Jesus, nailed down to the cross for our sakes. Nothing can remove us from the love of God. So what Psalm 44 was pleading for, sort of through the smoke and the fog, we look to the cross and the resurrection of our dear Lord Jesus. And it's like the light has just been ramped up in the room. We're not, we're not, we're not praying to a different God, Old Testament and New Testament. We're, we're knowing the same God even better in the face of the Lord Jesus through his death and resurrection. You know, there are various places in the Bible which say things like, those who wait for me or those who wait for the Lord will not be disappointed. We wonder if Psalm 44, the writer, could have looked ahead and glimpsed Jesus Christ, all, this, all the mockery heaped upon him in his cross, bloodied, and hanging there, the love of God nailed down for his people, and then the subsequent glories that our Lord Jesus entered into, the resurrection, death defeated. Because the wonderful thing for us to realize is that if suffering itself is a mark of the Father's love, if suffering itself marks us out as God's people, well, then it really is true that nothing can separate us from God's love.
Let's close then with this little picture. Uh, a place where Jesus is, in fact, literally asleep. Perhaps you know it. Jesus is asleep in the boat. There, there, uh, this, you can read this in Matthew 8, uh, as well as elsewhere in the Gospels. The disciples are terrified because they think they're going to drown. I'm sure you know this story. There arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but Jesus was asleep. And they went and woke him saying, save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid? O you of little faith. Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea and there was a great calm. And the men marveled saying, what sort of man is this? That even winds and sea obey him. Now we could refer to this famous story as a reminder of the awesome power of, of, of God in Christ uh, to turn things around with a simple word to save his people. But what I want to get at, what I want to link us to, are Jesus's, is Jesus' response to uh, before he calms the storm. They say, wake up, wake up, we're perishing. And he says, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? And the question that I, that I want to leave us with as we, as we draw things to a close is, why is it that we think when Jesus says, oh, you of little faith, we seem to imagine him frowning and scowling and, and disappointed in his people? That seems to me to feel like very much like a fat controller world. Doesn't it? Like, you've woken me up, I'm disappointed in your lack of faith. Okay, I'll calm the storm. When you read Matthew's gospel, which is a gospel in which Jesus uses that phrase several times, oh, you have little faith, um, in every single case that he uses it, he's always uh, just about to or has just uh, taught or saved people in some way. In other words, this phrase, oh, you have little faith, should be understood as a, as a, as a word of nurture, as a word of affirmation, as a way of building up what is there. That the Father delights in his people who trust in him. In the same way that I have, a, again, let's, my little, let's talk about my little three-year-old son again. I might take him to the park. He's learning to ride his bike, let's say. He rides down the hill and, and falls over. Uh, and I might, I might pick him up in my arms and go, oh, little man, why did you, why'd you get distracted by the bumblebee? You know, um, it's, a, it's, it's not a phrase of criticism and rebuke. It's a phrase, oh, little man, I'll go, let's, let's, you're doing great. Let's, let's keep going. Psalm 44 is written by someone who knew God as he really is, a God of steadfast love, never running out, never breaking, ever loyal, a steadfast love that redeems and covers the sins of his people, a steadfast love that doesn't stand aloof from his people because of their sin, but draws near in mercy and compassion, a God who in the Lord Jesus Christ takes on flesh in order to come near to the sinners and the foolish ones, you and I, a God who says to us, you have little faith. Trust in me. Pour out your heart to me. Wait on me. Boast in your weaknesses. Boast in your sufferings. Because your sufferings for my sake show that you are mine. Let's pray. For your sake. We face death all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. 
Father, please strengthen our hearts uh, in this. Give us power from your spirit to endure, no doubt, many of us here in hard things at the moment. Give us power not simply to endure in a kind of grit our teeth and get through it kind of way, but to endure in such a way which involves constantly looking to you, the true lighthouse. Knowing your unfailing mercy and love and tenderness and knowing that even these trials which are transient but ever so bitter even these things mark us out as your people it is for your sake that we join the Lord Jesus in this experience of shame and suffering that we might also share in his glory we ask these things in, uh, in his name